0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Searching the Sacred. We're excited to be wrapping up season six with an episode that will dive back into the book of Genesis. And we're going to look at a character that can often be overlooked by the people around her, and sometimes her narrative is misunderstood. And so we're going to be talking about Rebecca today from Genesis chapter 27 And we're probably going to cover the entirety of this chapter in some form or fashion, but to save you from sheer boredom, we are going to not read the whole thing to you, just the first 10 verses. So Lisa, take it away.
1: Uh, Genesis 27
2: verses 1 to 10 out of the New King James Version. Now it came to pass when Isaac was old and his eyes were so dim that he could not see that he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, my son. And he answered him, here I am. Then he said, Behold, now I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Therefore, please take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and make me savory food, such as I love, and bring it to me, that I may eat, that my soul may bless you
1: before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to Esau, his son, and Esau went to the field to hunt game and to bring it. So Rebekah spoke to Jacob, her son, saying, Indeed. I heard your father speak to Esau, your brother,
2: saying, Bring me game and make savory food for me, that I may eat it and bless you in the presence of the
1: Lord before my death. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice according to what I command you. Go now to the flock and bring me from there two choice kids of the goats, and I will make savory food from them for your father, such as he loves. Then you shall take it to your father, that he may eat it, and that he may bless you before his death. Okay um i'm curious what stuck out to
2: us as we listened or read that passage and maybe i'll just say from jason's introduction that um this passage really is about isaac and it's about isa and it's about jacob and it's about rebecca our focus tends to be on rebecca um and as we talk today we'll talk about all of them and we'll talk about how rebecca's actions intersect with all of them so what stuck out to you about any of those characters or what's happening in the story
1: today.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think to further your point that you just clarified for us, like this story tends to be one of the focal points of Rebecca's quote unquote narrative of how we understand Rebecca while also being a story about Isaac and Esau and Jacob. And, and because we we focus on Rebecca in this moment, it tends to cloud maybe how we see her um, and then and really, this is such a pivotal
1: moment for everybody else as well. What makes it a pivotal moment? Well, it's about blessing, and that's a big thing in <laughs> the life of uh this family
0: at this point and and the life of Israel moving forward so
1: uh, we're, we're kind of at a, uh, a hinge moment, as I would say. <laughs> Lisa, how about you? Anything stick out to you as you read it? Um, I think I just am thinking about the naming conventions that are happening in how, um, Esau is named as his son and Jacob, is name as her son. Mm-hmm. Um. Mhm. Yeah, there's just something in that. Mhm. Yeah, that that's in verse um 5 uh and 6.
2: Rebecca was listening as Isaac spoke to Esau, his son. Rebecca said to Isaac, to Jacob, her son. And um one of the places that I noticed that or in studies in around this passage is we've talked to people about family dynamics and the intergenerational trauma that many of us have experienced. And so one thing is to just say, this is a messy family with messy dynamics. And what happens when you get to this pivotal moment, this hinge moment, when you are a part of a family with messy family dynamics, um, and to just notice that and to say, there's going to be a lot of desire in us to make one person right and one person wrong and have heroes and villains and in messy family dynamics, it's usually not that clear
1: who the hero is and who the villain is. Cause it's maybe not even about that. Hmm. I think mean, that's a really important thing to point out, like that we don't oversimplify this to like, who's the
0: hero, who's the villain, who's the victim, you know, like um, all that, like, cause we could very easily just do that you know, we could see old man Isaac got taken advantage of. We could see Rebecca being the manipulator. We could see Jacob being the, you know, the usurper. We could see Esau being the victim um, and the curmudgeon, or I don't know how you'd want to put him, you know, later on. So like, yeah, we could very easily categorize and label each of these characters, right? As if they're in a movie um, and as opposed to, recognizing the full humanity of who they are and the complexity of that. Like we would, if we were actually experiencing it ourselves, we would not simply just be the hero or be the victim or be, you know, whatever we would uh, be much more complex than that. Even though we do the same thing to everybody else in our life, we (laughs) label them and we make them the victim. We make them the hero. We make them the villain. And that's the narrative that we form around
1: people. So maybe this is a cautionary tale not to do that. Well, and that part goes back to Genesis 25. So maybe we can see those two, um,
2: Genesis 25, 27 to 28. So it says there, the boys grew. Esau was a cunning hunter, a man of the field. Jacob was a plain man dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved
1: Esau because he did eat of his venison, but Rebekah loved Jacob is how the King James Version says it.
2: So that's where we see this dynamic starting to come into play of one son being attached to one parent and the other son being attached to the other parent. And we can wonder why that's happening here, different ways we've heard it said, different ways we might interpret
1: why that split is happening here. So I'm curious what you heard and how I just read it, either of you. Well, it's interesting that Isaac loves his son because of something that his son does. And it seems to say that Rebecca just loves Jacob. And it makes me think of like the complex relationships with our kids Um, or our parents, depending on where we are in life, our stages. Um Like sometimes it, there's a, and you know, nobody wants to say they love one kid more than another because that's whatever. You don't say that. But there is a way that you connect to a child differently, like different passions, different personalities, different, um, I don't know. There's just a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. Hmm. And like that even speaks to the differences, I think, between Rebecca and Isaac, which we don't always talk about, like how they're just individually different people that what what pleases Isaac is not going to be what pleases Rebecca. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, what's helpful for one may not be helpful for the other or endearing. Um, And this always feels like a spot where I I feel defensive of
2: the the, the way that English translates the Hebrew for Jacob. So let me put that on the table as Lisa's naming this really important thing of like what a parent prefers and why is that sometimes we also get lost here talking about Jacob as a mama's boy in some way because of the way it's translated. Um, And what it says in Hebrew is Jacob is a um, plain or in English, it's said a plain man, but in Hebrew, it's Tom, T-A-M, which means to be perfect, complete, or full of integrity. It's the root, it's the word Tamim is used to describe Noah and why Noah is chosen as, as the one to build the ark because he's Tamim, he's perfect, he's whole. he's complete, he's sound in the midst of a generation where no one is complete and sound. And that is a word being used to describe Jacob, the heel grabber that we label as deceitful, but like in this moment, he's actually being labeled as complete and sound
1: and full of integrity and dwelling in the tents. Which is so ironic because the very
0: next thing that happens after they say Esau, you know, was, you know, appreciated more by his father and Jacob more by his mother. And then we see Jacob doing a fairly shady, like, hey, I'm not going to give you food until you sell me your birthright. And Esau's like, okay, fine. Like, just give me the food. You can have my birthright. And so this person that's full of integrity and is whole is like also
1: conniving and cunning. So it's an interesting juxtaposition in a way. Well, and maybe it's a way to help us have that next part be complicated too, because what does it say about
2: Esau that he's willing to sell his birthright for a pot of porridge? does it necessarily mean that Jacob doesn't have integrity if he's testing his brother to see what his birthright is worth to him. And it's, and if Esau is showing what it's worth to him in this moment. Like, is it as deceitful as we framed it? I'm not saying it's good. We're gonna we're gonna avoid. We're gonna stay in the gray with this story. There's a lot of gray.
1: But it, but is it as bad as we've tended to say that it is? We also have an interesting value on some sort of honesty, integrity. That's actually crap. <laughs> we like to say that we have it. Um, like when we judge people about it all the time. But like, really, I in some ways if this is the younger sibling and we know how power is structured, like the older sibling has, has more power than the younger one. They're going to get more responsibility. They'll have more stuff. Um, when you don't have power, you sometimes listen, I think about this in the prison all the time. Cause it's one of the places that I most clearly feel the power dynamic at play. There is a clear line of people who have power and people who do not have power and, and it is stacked. So depending on where, but for sure the people who are incarcerated have the least amount of power. If they weren't trying to be clever or cunning or shrew or tricksters, or they would never get anything, quite frankly, like Mm -hmm. nobody has anything. It's a very, Again, like it's that there's for sure like there's gray in there. Like mm-hmm. we don't want people to like be tricksters. And but it depends on where we are in the power system. Mm-hmm. Like I don't want my children to be tricksters. But would I be a trickster to get what I needed out of something? Yeah. I mean, I've been known to do stupid st- stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, and maybe maybe there's a way that what you're
2: challenging us to do, Lisa, is to wonder about how we define integrity and how in ancient times they would have defined integrity and how God defines integrity and what it means for Jacob to be called Tom and then act this way. Is he going against the integrity? Or can you have that sort of complete soundness in your identity and still be a trickster because it's not even whether this is a mistake or a right action, can you still be a person who's complete and sound and whole when you make that next step? Or do we think that that disqualifies Jacob from being labeled as complete and sound and whole because he did this thing?
1: Mm. Yeah. Well, I, like, right. Even if I thought about if even if the three of us were supposed to come up with a definition of what we thought integrity looked like, it would probably be different. If I think about like my sisters and we all had to like, think of, talk about like what we thought integrity looked like for sure we would have actually different thoughts about it, mm-hmm. but it feels like it should be a black and white thing. Mm-hmm. Like truth or it's true or it's not true.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and I think you're right to point out the power dynamic because that really does play a role into how everything is situated. Right. Because if you're talking about a younger brother who is going to be shaped by his older
1: brother's leadership of the family. Maybe, maybe he wants to find out. Is this, is this person really have it? Because if they don't, holy cow, like, this is going to mess up not
0: just my life, but like everybody's life. Like, we're a growing family. This isn't just a small group of people. This is like a large group of people that are all you know, queuing in on the leadership of one person. And if that person doesn't have it, I mean, if succession has taught us anything, it's that the whole thing comes crumbling down. Sorry. (laughs) Um, Game of Thrones teaches us this. Lord of the Rings teaches us this. Every story teaches us this. If the leader doesn't have it, then it all comes crumbling down. And, And the other thing that we have to remember is that these aren't two brothers where it's like a seven year age gap between the two of them and younger brothers just being annoying. We're talking about like, like minutes and hours difference, right? Like the whole story is that, I mean, Jacob gets his name because he's grabbing onto the heel of his brother as they both come out of the womb. So like, I mean, we're talking about one person having a lot less power because someone else was born minutes ahead of them. I mean, it's one thing for a younger brother of seven years to be like jealous of an older brother. And it's a little bit like, okay, come on, get over it. Like they're just older than you. Of course, they're going to have more Mm -hmm. you know, leadership than you do, but for someone to be like, I'm sorry, he was two minutes older than me, and suddenly he gets the keys of the kingdom, and I have to obey him. Like, this doesn't make any sense. Like, I would be way more bitter about that and, and willing to challenge and be like, maybe, maybe you should have just rotated the babies in the belly for a second, and we would have had the leader we needed. Like,
2: and what you're hitting on there is how the biblical narrative is challenging power dynamics of the ancient world. Right. Even in having these twins and having this be the thing, to say, why is it our rule that systematically that the older brother gets the household? That's the rule of the ancient world. and there's a way we can see the ridiculousness of it with these two twins. Like, why is it Esau because he was born one minute sooner? Like what is his skill set? What is Jacob's skill set? Esau's skill set is that he's a hunter. He loves being out in the field. Jacob's skill set is that he's got integrity and like staying in the tents. The person who gets the birthright is the one in charge of the household who has to live in the tents. Which one is better suited for the role? What if we decided it that way instead of based on who was born two minutes earlier? Because Esau doesn't want the job. Jacob wants the job. Yeah. Why can't it be skill set and
1: desire? Why is it birth order? How might this be challenging the power structures of the ancient world?
2: Which is also being challenged if we just step back a minute of, um, in Genesis 25, the, the babies are wrestling in the womb. And Rebecca is rightly concerned about that. <laughs> what is going on in me? Because there's no ultrasound. She doesn't even know it's twins at that point, unless she's like fell four feet. Like, what is this happening? And Rebecca receives a prophetic word from the Lord. Rebecca is told by the Lord, you have two sons and the older will serve the younger. So from before they're born, power structures are being upended because Rebecca
1: is the one who hears directly from the Lord who's going to have the power with her two sons. And I, and I think that's a really important thing to point out because if we're going like to get maybe, I don't know if frustrated is the
0: right word, if we're going to be judgy about Rebecca's decision to like help Jacob you know, steal the blessing, is it is it really her conniving that's doing it? Or is it her obedience to the word of the Lord? Because, I mean, the Lord is pretty clearly saying, um, hey, I got a plan in place here. You need to know what's happening. This is what's going on. And then she basically takes that and says, okay, I'm going to run with it and help make sure that that's what goes down. And yet we judge her for it. If you're a female, raise your hand if that's ever been your your story. <laughs>
1: Right, like what is, what do we,
2: I have to think differently about what I say or how I say it or how I do things because I know that I, how it will be interpreted. I know when I am guest speaking at different churches, I think very thoughtfully about what to wear, about Mm -hmm. how to present myself so that I will be heard in those different contexts. I don't know that I would have to think quite so hard about it that if I were male. Agreed. Um, (laughs) uh, Right. And so this is the ancient world. Rebecca has even less power than I have in the modern world. How does she have to operate differently according to those
1: power structures? And what kind of leeway are we going to give her for how she's using the power that she does have? I also, before we go back to 27, I want to um,
2: give another possibility for, for this dynamic. So we have Jacob in the tents, we have Esau as a hunter, and we have Isaac loving Esau, and we have Rebecca loving Jacob. Um, one of the things that has also been come up in a study before, I think it was actually
1: Rabbi Allen who, who named this in a study, that... Esau is a hunter and Ishmael was a hunter. How might a part of what is going on in Isaac
2: have to do with the generational trauma of being raised in that Esau or Ishmael, Isaac environment where Ishmael was cast out, where Isaac was brought up a mountaintop and almost sacrificed? How is all of that in him and how is that affecting how he sees both of his sons having lived through a brother being exiled and him almost being sacrificed. To connect those stories to who Isaac is, is also important because we sometimes separate out the story of Abraham from the story of Isaac versus seeing how, how might Isaac have been affected by an exiled brother? How might Isaac been affected by going
1: up that mountaintop with Abraham? How does that affect him right now? How does it affect how Rebecca sees her
2: kids that she we, there's a whole chapter about her actually in what, what chapter is it 24 that she is really um, seems to have power in the in the household that she comes from. There seems to be a value of women that's really interesting when we sort of see what happens when the servant
1: goes to find her. How does that affect how she sees the two sons? Yeah, I mean, my 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 thought when you ask like how
0: how does all this play together or come together and i was like, well, of course it does.
1: Like, of course what you experienced as a kid and what you experienced with your parent or parents impacts how you see the world, how you're going to parent.
0: I mean, there are things that I do as a parent that I know I've, I've been modeled that I told myself, Hey, when you're a parent, maybe don't do it that way. Mm -hmm. And then like it, I just like suddenly, you know, an hour later, I'm like, Whoa, I just did it that way. (laughs) Like, okay. Like readjust expectations about uh, how wonderful I am, you know, because apparently I have that in me too. And Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, that's okay. Like, I got to just
1: figure that part out now. Um, but yeah, of course, Isaac is bringing all that complexity into
0: mm-hmm. his relationship with his kids. And and he's also 60 years old when they're born, so he's getting up there. Um, It's not like he's 35 and hanging out with his twins, you know, it, mm-hmm. and going into the fields with them or hunting with them. I mean, he's... He's valuing something in his older son that he probably like like he says in the in chapter twenty seven he can't do anymore, so mm-hmm. there's a little you know how many of us as parents live vicariously through our kids when we get to a certain age of oh crap, there goes my baseball career, but I can coach my kid now, you know kind of <laughs> kind of mentality
2: i it's um I put on my other hat for a second. My, um, I think I'm sure it's come up before that I do Enneagram coaching as my other world besides 40 Orchards and this podcast. And so people ask me often what, how, how do I use Enneagram in parenting and, and how, how early, and the question usually that follows that is how, how young can I type my child so that I can parent them better? And the, most effective parenting book I've ever seen about the Enneagram isn't about the type our kids are. It's about the type we are as parents and how that affects what we value in our children and what bothers us in our children and how our type mm. creates a bias for what we think a good "quote unquote" <laughs> good child looks like. Yeah, and um, and that that's the most effective place you can do Enneagram work as a parent is to say what are my biases.
1: And how is that? If,
2: how does that mean I have blind spots with my kids and who they are? Um, and and any tool that helps us see those biases is going to be helpful because that really does affect how we parent. We bring a lot of stuff into parenting, and this is the ancient world. They don't have therapists. They don't have. There's a lot that they don't have that we have access to in terms of emotional and psychological health and talking about those things. They're just navigating them and surviving and bringing those traumas forward because we all do. So let's go back to 27. You mentioned Isaac being old. And how does it introduce Isaac in 27 verse 1?
0: His eyes were dim. He could not see.
1: So in Deuteronomy 34, Moses is described as having eyes that have not dimmed. Same language, but in the reverse. And Moses is 120 at that point. Isaac here, as you mentioned, is probably more like. Well, I mean, he might be 100. He's he's getting older. But
2: what does that invite us to think about? If someone can be 120 and not have dim eyes, it
0: means he must have been raised in the palace of Pharaoh. <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's also probably true. <laughs> Um, leading
1: question. So I'll I'll unpack my own leading question. Uh, what if this is not about physical eyes? There are places when we're reading scripture that we assume it's about the physical and places we assume it's not. And
2: sometimes we don't allow our mystical eyes to see descriptors in the other way. So what if this isn't about his physical eyes? What if there's something in Isaac that means he's old? in a way that is inhibiting him from really seeing what's going on.
1: And what, what is that? Have we encountered that in ourselves and others? I want to hear what Lisa has to say. I think there's a lot of things we don't see until we, and we can see it in hindsight. We cannot see it live time or like trying to move forward. um, I think about, um, I don't know if this is a good example or not. Uh, um, one of my boys, um, like total lie for a really long time. I like, and I, and my husband, we were completely oblivious. Come, I mean, we were living in a different world and it, <laughs> I feel like it was more than dim we had no clue. Mm-hmm. And then when you find out the truth and then you look backwards, you're like, holy smokes that. Yep. Should have picked that up. <laughs> and it's not even like, like he was being like such a horrific person. It's not even, it's none of that. In some ways it was almost like we chose to not see things because it would have been harder to see it. Um, and then there is, I'll tell you what, that is one of the most like shame-inducing moments as a parent to like have like put down like these strong I don't know statements about your kids and all this other stuff, and then to have to like back the truck up and be like, actually, oh, I like I I chose to not see it, and not only did I choose not see it, it's like I almost broadcasted the opposite. Um, well, I love that this. How do we choose to not see things because it's too hard to see them? How do, we, how do we sometimes make our own eyes dim because
2: we can't face something?
0: Which actually lines up really well with this passage, because in the chapter right before, Esau is going to marry these two Hittite wives that are going to drive Isaac and Rebecca bonkers, which I think is the actual literal translation. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> But if the end of chapter twenty six is, and Esau's decision was, you know, making his parents kind of go crazy or have an unsettled life, and then the very next thing is, hey, I'm getting kind of old. All right, let me uh, let me get something good to eat from my oldest son and ignore everything else, and you know, give him the blessing that I need to pass on before I go. You know, you, you kind of wonder, like, yeah, is he choosing to dim? his view of things as opposed to stepping into the wisdom that he probably already knows is right sitting in right right in front of him
2: well especially if we go back to the power conversation we were having of how is he letting the power structures of the ancient world just keep going without thought like oh it's my oldest son it's time i better versus like oh could we do this differently like is this the right leader of the household mm-hmm. Not that that means he's bad or I have to love him any less or any of those things. That that part reminds me of like, you know, when a parent, when it comes time for a parent to choose like the executor of the estate or the power of attorney because they're aging, I don't think that has anything to do with favoritism. I think that has to do, or it shouldn't at least, it should be who has the best skill set to do that thing. There comes a time where I'm going to have to give that, that, power over to my child, I would hope that when I'm at that age, I would choose it based on the best child to do it. Not because I love them more, but because I see who they are. And I see, oh, this child is in a life stage where they really couldn't handle that. that would be too much for them. Or this child would be really overwhelmed by the responsibility. Or this child would be better suited for this
1: conversation. Like, mm-hmm. What if it's not about favoritism? But if it shouldn't be about favoritism?
0: But it's still about relationships and having to navigate that. Right. And so it's easy to just fall back on cultural norms than it is to like go against them, knowing that by breaking a cultural norm, you're breaking an expectation of a relationship. You mm-hmm. know, so if Esau has it in his mind, like I'm the oldest son. I've always been treated like the oldest son. Of course, I'm going to be the one to run things. This isn't even in question. If Jacob is going to go against conventional wisdom or cultural norms and do something radically different, like that's going to affect relationship at a pretty deep level. When your whole life has been leading up to that point, and that's the only expectation that you've had to operate with, you've never even entertained the idea of something else happening. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, you know, we use the idea of like executor of the will. Like, I mean, if your oldest kid had it in mind that that's going to be my role, is to be the kind of voice of the family once my parents are gone, but then my parents decide to put the younger one in charge. Like if you haven't, if you don't prepare them for that, that might
1: be a shocking moment because you're going against the expectation of the older son. Right. Hmm. You just used the words we haven't talked about, or you haven't like if
2: we don't prepare them for that, So to Mm -hmm. me, that raises the possibility of what are the different ways this whole thing could have gone down? Mm -hmm. Like if Isaac and Rebecca are watching their two boys and saying, you know what? Esau loves hunting. Jacob loves being in the tents. You know what? Like, what if we free them to be themselves? What if we have a sit down and say, we love you both. Here's the path that seems right for both of you. What do you think? What would you like to go against cultural norms with us? That feels
1: like, I don't know any parents that do that shit. <laughs> <laughs> I, like in some ways I'm like, I, I can't quite go there. I can think about, um, I think it's interesting that I, it feels like everybody's doing stuff in private, in mm-hmm. secret. Um, cause I do wonder about what if his dad had called both boys in. At the same time, if Isaac was going to be allowed to witness or to be a part um, or to receive a different blessing, um, I don't know that you have to be stingy with your blessings. I think Mm -hmm. there may be a particular Mm -hmm. type of blessing that might be reserved for the child that's going to have that firstborn responsibility. Um, But I think we've seen there's there's more there's more than one blessing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. There's room. And so I just and even having Rebecca as part of that. Um, like actually like to have the family actually witness bear witness to each other instead of doing these things that feel very um, like it feels like Isaac's doing something shady. It's not just, it's not just like that. I don't know. There's something like, I just kind of think like, Oh, Hey, cause I also don't know. Does he always make this stew? Because it kind of feels like mom is like, Oh, I know how to make what he loves. Mm-hmm. I got this. like, I'll do it with goats. I don't, I don't even need his venison. I got this. So then I'm wondering, like, well, does is that normal for him to cook that? Like, <laughs> well, I mean, Lisa, you're. like. I want to like bookmark
2: two things because we'll have to do one at a time because you said two really key things about this. One is about what about the blessing? Why do we think the blessing's limited? Like, we're allowing that cultural norm to also be a part of this conversation. What if it's? What if difference doesn't mean limit? Um, and and. Does, and then the other piece of the secrecy and how secrecy affects this trajectory. And what if it were all out in the open and they were having the hard conversations together? So let's go to the blessing being limited first, because we actually are ready, even in the ancient world and even this early in scripture, have an example of it not being limited, which is Genesis 17. So Genesis 17, God is blessing Abraham and changing Abraham and Sarah's name to Abraham and Sarah from Abram and Sarai and talking about how Sarai is going to be pregnant with Isaac. And Isaac is going to receive this birthright of being the one to pass on, like to continue the Abramic blessing that has happened. But Ishmael has already been born. And so, um, Abraham is like lamenting, but what about Ishmael? Verse 18, if only Ishmael might live in your presence. Um, And verse 20, God says, as for Ishmael, I've heard you. I will make him blessed. I will make him bear fruit. I will make him exceedingly abundantly great. Twelve nations will come from him. So God, God's like, yeah, there's enough to bless Isaac and Ishmael, Isaac's got a specific role here, but that doesn't mean Ishmael's not blessed. Actually, I'm going to give a great blessing
1: to Ishmael. Let's bless both, just differently.
0: And the the word of the Lord to Rebecca back in chapter 25 is not simply that the younger brother will rule over the older brother, but that there's two nations inside of her, which we've already established a generation ago that Mm -hmm. there were two nations that both received a blessing. So the Mm -hmm. family precedent that you just pointed out is that you can actually bless both. And now here we're deciding to almost go backwards Mm
1: -hmm. and to
0: say only one's going to get a blessing, not both of them. When the Lord said there's two nations here, I've already established that I can bless both. And so they're twins of all things. So let's, what if we just did it differently? Or- what if we did it consistently? Cuz this family's only a generation old. So let's just stick with that being the new norm. Is that mm-hmm. we just throw around blessing? Like what what if that's what we do? We just bless people.
1: Mm-hmm. And a how do idea. we
0: I
2: mean how many generations past this are we now and how do we still fall into the assumption that there's not enough blessing to go around? And that difference means less that like, because that person's a leader in that place and I'm not a leader in that place. I'm somehow lesser as compared to just different. I'm differently blessed than that person. Who's, you know, like how often do I fall in this trap on social media that I must be worse than the person with however many followers instead of like, no, we've got a different role to play in the world. They're
1: blessed and I'm blessed, not a competition.
0: Right. So that's scarcity versus abundance mindset.
1: Also, I'm just going to name. I don't know that any of that, like, <laughs> blessed. Like, the word feels like, I I actually just don't even like the word anymore in some ways. Like, it feels weird. Mm-hmm. And if I'm thinking about, I don't know that Jacob or Esau feels like, it's, it's like, I would go, oh, they're blessed. In this, like, at any point <laughs> after that blessings giving. Mm-hmm. Right? even in is it a blessing to like have to run the household Mm. like I mean maybe it is if that's what you really really want I don't even know if Esau that's what Esau really really wants like do you want to run do you want to be responsible for all the family and all the things or I don't I mean it's interesting that the blessed because the blessing just doesn't it doesn't feel like a blessing. It doesn't really look like a blessing. And I think it, it I think it weighted. can be. I think it can be. It and it
0: has to do with how we hold power and what we're what, what are what we use our power for. Because the blessing is to be a blessing, right? You're you're like you, you're blessed to bless others. So if the family if the if the household is run with a sense of benevolence in mind, that our job is to help. Others and to serve others and to see others flourish. That can be a beautiful responsibility to get to, to navigate. But if, if the blessing is to, Hey, don't screw this up. Hoard as much power as possible. Keep as much influence to yourself as you can so that you remain powerful. Well, you're right. Then there, that's not a blessing. That's a curse, right? That, that's a, that's junk. And and that literally is the, the show Succession, where I was listening, sorry, I'm gonna take this off in a little pop culture uh portion, but I was listening to a podcast on succession and they were they were asking the question, uh, what does it look like to win? Like 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 who's gonna win and what does it look like to win? And so they 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 discuss like, oh, I think this person's gonna come out on top and run the company. No, I think this person's gonna run the company, no, I think this person might run the company. And then one person drops in and, and she goes, you know, actually, I think the person that wins all of this is the one that gets out and says i don't want any more to do with any of this i'm i'm done i'm done playing all of this charade of awfulness and that's the actual winning is the ability to see all of this is corrupt and all of this is corrupting and i got to separate myself from it and and so i feel like how we hold power what we use it for impacts whether something's a blessing or a curse and if it is a curse then I think winning is getting out and figuring out, okay, how do I make something into a blessing now?
1: I, I love,
2: <laughs> I am distracted by your pop culture of not only watching a show, but listening to a podcast about the show you watch. Cause there's a particular kind of pop culture thing there that I love. And it reminds me of like before the days of podcasts about um, shows there was a show that I, I watched. I was a huge alias fan, but oh, yeah. alias was on before there were podcasts. Of, like, And there was a particularly like dramatic season ending once where I like immediately like got onto internet chat rooms to figure out what people were saying about the season ending. And I, and I, as I was doing it, I was like, this is a new level of nerd. Like, I don't know what to do about the fact that I'm doing this, but I can't, I got to talk to somebody about this.
0: I know exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> and it was, The most crazy I I talked to so many people about the ending of that season of alias. (laughs) My name is not Michael Vaughn in car crash.
1: Exactly. I was like,
2: no one was home. I needed to talk to somebody.
0: You realize there's like four people that are gonna listen to this podcast and be like, oh my gosh, that's me too. And then I know. Well it's it's, gonna be like it has to be the right generation of people that were
2: huge alias fans when it was on. Okay. Okay. Generation we're not that far apart in generations that I did not watch alias. I was probably busy watching. Well, no, but I'm also guessing that anybody under the age of
1: 35 did not watch Alias.
0: And it's hard to find it now. I mean, it's maybe not that hard, but like, it's not like people are going back to watch that.
1: Okay. But I want to go back to the
2: bigger thing you said about blessing. Jacob,
0: Esau, that whole thing. Yeah.
2: Well, I think that the blessing piece, one of the things that would be an interesting study for us to do sometime or for our listeners to do is to notice how God blesses and how people bless. And where we're interpreting those to be overlapped when they're not. So Isaac is saying, I want to give, I my soul wants to give you a blessing before I die. Isaac never names that as the Lord's blessing. Is it the Lord's blessing for Jacob or not? Um, when are people, what, and how does that determine like what is and isn't a blessing? And like what God, when God has blessed in scripture so far, we've seen God say, be fruitful and multiply. That's somehow a blessing. Um, we've seen God say to Abraham that like the, the Abram, that the nations on earth would be blessed through him. Like what kinds of words is God using to bless and what kind of words is human are is humans using to bless? And then the word blessing itself is the word kneel, um, or knee it's Barach. So it's the word knee. So it's to kneel or to cause to kneel. That can mean a lot of things. Sometimes maybe that feels positive. Sometimes that feels negative. Like blessing is a really complicated word and a complicated idea of what it really is and what it
1: really means. I mean, again, it goes back to that power thing too of like, I think we like to be in the spot of where we're always like, it is, I like to think about like, well, I'm going to bless everybody. I like to be the blessing (laughs) and it, it takes actually a lot of work to think about where do I need to be blessed? Who, like, who, and who do, I mean, in some ways, given the Western culture that we live in, like, who do I allow to do that in my life? Mm-hmm. Like, where, where, where am I humble enough to, like, kneel mm-hmm. and allow for a blessing to actually come over my life? Who's safe? Mm-hmm. Um, Which see. I feel like that brings us back to your second
2: point earlier, Lisa, of the secrecy here. Like, what would have happened? How could this have all happened differently if there was a mutuality of the four of them being in the same room at the same time and saying, okay, mm-hmm. this, is a, this is a pivotal moment. Let's mm-hmm. all gather for this pivotal moment. Let's have hard conversations. Let's bless one another. Let's receive blessing from one another. Let's have this be a mutual thing instead of this weird power dynamic that's happening in the secrecy and in the hoarding of power that's happening as they're not talking to each other. To me, that really feels like fear. Like, what are they afraid
1: of? If they all got in the room together, kind of depends on what Isaac doesn't want to see. Mm. Well, wow. uh, say more. Well, that's what sets up the story. Mm-hmm. Like, that's what we're we're set up the story that Isaac eyes are dim. Um. And I don't really care how dim your eyes are. I'm pretty sure you know the difference between your kids. And I also don't think goats can listen. <laughs> Sometimes when I think about this story, I'm like, this thing's just this. This, this is a tale. <laughs> how, how? Well, this is another interpretation I've heard. Um,
2: I think again. I think that, again. This is a Rabbi Allen one. Of really leaning into that and saying, of course, Isaac could feel the difference between goat hair and Esau. And what if Rebecca is giving him a chance to save face? Mm. What if Rebecca is giving him the opportunity to pretend that he couldn't tell the difference so that
1: whatever pride is keeping him from seeing he can hold on to Mm. and do what needs to be done that he didn't have the strength to do? Right, because what, so if, if Rebecca gets this word from God that says, like, Jacob's going to be it, like that, they're going to be, there's going to be some problems, there's going to be some tension. They're both going to have, like, it's two nations. And I mean, what if her and Isaac chat about it and they're like, we're just not going to tell the boys. We're just not going to, we're just not going to tell them. We'll just. It'll work itself out. <laughs> like we learned from A-Brain on 0 <laughs> We're just gonna, we gonna wait it out like I'd work it out. And then suddenly when you're, you're getting to the point where you're like, okay, nobody's done anything. I mean, I don't know that you'd want to tell the kid that you've raised. Yeah, maybe, I mean, maybe that's the pain of, all the stuff with his dad and his brother and who wants to like hurt a brother Mm -hmm. because it's brothers it's sons it's that whole that whole narrative and then you have Rebecca who comes I mean I love the story like I love the introduction of Rebecca because she really does have some autonomy that I just love um and so what if you throw like a healthy woman in the mix (laughs) like dysfunctional, hard fathers and relationships. What, what happens? What do you, how do you do that? Hmm. There is a way here that we see Rebecca being a player that
2: does guard some of that autonomy, that even after all these years, she has some power in this household. And that's not nothing in ancient patriarchal society that she's has a role to play in this narrative. Um, and she had a role to play when back when the servant went to find her, she was given the choice of whether she wanted to go. Her family said, "It's up to you," mm-hmm. which again is a big thing in the ancient worlds, and a really powerful story about who Rebecca is and where she comes from. That her family is like giving her the choice, and she's like, "Yeah, I want to go." Um, and even uh, I've heard it said that like Isaac never leaves his home, which. To be fair to Isaac, God tells him not to leave. God tells him to stay. But generationally, then, when we think about this, um, this idea that Abram, in order to receive the blessing, has to leave everything he's ever known. And Jacob leaves everything he's ever known following this passage. And that's a part of what allows him to live into his future. In that generation in between, it's not Isaac who leaves. It's Rebecca who leaves. And so some people actually say, instead of calling it the faith of abraham isaac and jacob it should be abraham rebecca and jacob because rebecca is the one that follows the pattern
1: not isaac
0: and she seems to be the one that's willing to do the moving and the shaking and the the family making Mm -hmm. Ooh, and that rhymed (laughs) spitting lyrics just dropping (laughs) rhymes left
1: and right the moving and the shaking and the family making well, I like that. I like. I I approve that change.
0: <laughs> I approve that change. Yeah, I love it. You don't need my approval, but I, I I love
1: it.
2: Oh, the fact that she was the one who received the the oracle from the Lord about the future. Like, there's a way that she holds
1: place yeah. differently. Imagine if that had been taught. <sighs> like just mm-hmm. that simple shift. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was. Not and not, I mean, and not just taught it. not
0: just taught in like our generation of Sunday school. But mm-hmm. what if that was taught throughout Hebrew scriptures? What because we have a really hard time with Paul. Rightfully so. But if Paul was taught Abraham, Rebecca, and Jacob, where would that have led Paul mm-hmm. in his writing?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Like, could it could it have changed where and, and, and in a lot of ways, Paul advances the ideas of what it means to be human and what it means to be in community. I mean, writing some of the most beautiful things about one body and all having many parts and all being, you know, useful. And even the parts that, you know, we look at with less value are actually incredibly significant. And I mean, there's some so much beauty in that. And like, what if that was understood even
1: from like a gender standpoint, like, my goodness. I want to read um, a lot of how I see Rebecca has
2: come from the influence of Tikva Frymer-Kensky. She's a um, professor of the Hebrew Bible at the Divinity School at the University of Chicago. She's got a great book called Reading the Women of the Bible, A New Interpretation of Their Stories. And so in her chapter on Rebecca and valuing her, like we're talking about
1: here, um, this blue, I've like underlined and marked this page. The story never tells us
2: that Rebecca must use deception because she's powerless. And later readers have often accused her of improper and immoral behavior, but the biblical world valued cunning in the underdog. Only the powerful value honesty at all costs. Mm -hmm. The powerless know that trickery may save their lives. Early interpreters, both Jewish and Christian, praised Rebecca, as did medieval and Reformation writers. The censure did not begin until the end of the 19th century when male biblical scholars began to condemn her as Lady Macbeth. The pendulum is beginning to swing again as we learn more about how the disadvantaged make their way in the world and how women negotiate through patriarchy to some contemporary eyes, the ingenuity and cunning of Rebecca's plan is
1: itself a mark of divine guidance and her role as the divine helper. Wow. That's really good. So I've thought about that too, for like, are there other stories that we read in
2: scripture where we think the cunning looks positive
1: i can't think of an example off the top of my head um, well, there's, i mean well depending on how you read some of ruth mm-hmm. um, or
2: like you know what comes to mind actually is how many times david uses cunning and is praised for it mm-hmm. um david, yeah. goes hides, <laughs> david goes and hides david goes and hides in a, in a temple, like he's hungry and he eats the showbread and like uses an example of the Bible of how to do that because guys are hungry. Like he uses cunning a lot and it's seen as making him a great leader and a great King and a great military leader. And how does that show our biases in terms of who's allowed to use cunning and who's not allowed
1: to use cunning? And if you, if you have power, it's like a power play. And if you do not have power, then it is frowned upon. Like, it's the power wants the absolute everything, wants all the rules, wants all the benefits, all the stuff.
0: Well, not only that, but it's who do we want to win, right? Mm. We want David to win. So, when David uses cunning, we think it's a smart, savvy idea. Yeah. If we didn't want David to win, then we would probably say that his cunning was deceptive Sweet. and awful and cheated, yeah. right? Yeah. We don't want Rebecca to win. Mm-hmm. We want the patriarchy to continue. We can't possibly change it to Abraham, Rebecca, and I, and and Jacob. That would be that would be wrong, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm saying that in huge air quotes, right? <laughs> like massive air quotes. That would be wrong. Like I was about no, ready to so- cancel
1: the podcast <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: because it, so we have to label it as cunning and deceptive and wrong. Otherwise my gosh, we're just upended like
1: thousands of years of, you know, masculine history. Mm-hmm. I mean, it kind of reminds me of the the whole, it's that weird space of, it's actually not the point to eliminate Isaac. It can be Isaac and Rebecca. It, it can be like, we can include all the players in the conversation. Um we can elevate those other voices if we chose to there's, there is room like just like there's room for enough blessing. There is room for everybody to be a part of the story and to be a critical part. So I think there's probably, I mean, that speaks to how power keeps power in lots of ways. There's a narrative of scarcity that always is a part of the of power and like the narrative of abundance is actually the thing that disrupts it mm-hmm. for those who have it um, to live in such a way as you can give it out and let it. Yeah. We shouldn't be afraid to include a, a woman's voice in the leadership of the founding people of our faith.
2: Mm-hmm. And i think it's really
1: beautiful yeah that doesn't limit it doesn't limit isaac by raising rebecca mm-hmm. he's got other things that he does that are important in this narrative we skipped a bunch of his story i mean
2: like one of the ways we can elevate isaac is that that whole narrative about he and Abraham climbing up the mountain for him to be sacrificed. We tend to visualize him as a small child. He's probably at least 16 there. If you actually follow the biblical timeline, he is old enough to fight back. And he seems to have a faith that says, okay, I'll trust that God will provide something because he's allowing himself to go get on that altar. Another story for another time. There's a lot to unpack in there, but there's something really beautiful about Isaac in that passage. If he's willing to follow to that point, he's got a faith that's worth emulating. Like we don't have to limit that. He digs the, he does the work of digging new wells after, like, can you imagine having Abraham as a father? (laughs) There's a whole story in there about him having to dig his own wells and make his own way. And he does that. He does these things and Rebecca does different things and Rebecca does things that, that are also important. And let's,
1: let's not limit the pie. Let's see them both Mm -hmm. as important Mm -hmm. figures doing complicated
2: things and good things and bad things (laughs) and human things.
0: And, And I think part of what's beautiful about this conversation, just to kind of take it to a meta level. And I feel like this has been part of our narrative this season on, on searching the sacred is being willing to say, okay, we know the text and we know what it says and we know how it's been handed to us, but what if, like, what if it wasn't just Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? But what if it was Abraham and Sarah? What if it was Ishmael and Isaac and Rebecca? What if it was
1: Jacob and Leah and Rachel and. Zopan, Bilhan, Esau. Right. What if we added everyone? What if we included people who we've been shutting out which there's a beautiful way to frame that actually it's
2: i don't this might be a curveball late in the episode i'm not sure (laughs) but to notice that the bible actually doesn't leave people out but we tend to leave them out when we read it not that it doesn't leave anybody out it for sure does (laughs) but there's a lot of people like the fact that it names bilhan zilpa It doesn't want those concubines to be forgotten. Those, those, um, women that didn't have a choice in, in partnering with Jacob, it remembers their names. Can we do the job of remembering their names and honor that this ancient text remembered their names? That's actually unusual. It wants us to see them to say this ancient text has every nation that would be an enemy actually connected to be a a brother. So another way to see Esau's story here is to say Esau ends up becoming father of the Edomites. Edomites are an enemy people group to the Israelites. When this is written down afterwards, they're tracing Esau back to this story and having their patriarch Jacob play a role in why there's adversity between the two. It's not claiming Esau is bad and Jacob's good. It's saying, look at this complicated story that led to this adversity between us and our enemy They're actually brothers. Let's write that story down and let's write the story of, and it's not perfect. It often makes those enemy people groups look worse. Esau looks a little worse in this narrative, but Jacob doesn't look innocent. And that's not nothing. Can we remember the names? Can we see the complications? Can we make space
1: for a non-scarce mindset about who's got blessing and who's moving the story forward and who's good?
0: And then can we learn from that past and do it differently now? Right? I mean, I think that's ultimately what you're saying is, okay, if we, we can't make this story scarce and now let's not make our lives that way either. Let's not make our families scarcity mindset families. Let's not make our churches or our community, our nation, a scarcity mindset place because it's... It's not true, and it's not healthy, and it's not, forgive me for saying it, it's not blessing. This podcast is a partnership
3: between 40 Orchards and Processing Faith. Forty Orchards invites people to wrestle through biblical texts using the ancient Jewish concepts of Midrash. In a Forty Orchards study, every question is safe, everyone is welcome, and every voice is valued. We believe there's room for all of us. No person and no question is off limits because we know that together we can expand each other's experience of what is sacred, whole, and good. You can learn more about Forty Orchards and sign up for a study by going to 40orchards.org. That's four-zero-orchards.org. Processing Faith is a space created by Jason Steffenhagen for people to do exactly that, process their faith. It's not one thing, but more like a good recipe. It's like one part pastoral care, one part theological exploration, and one part wrestling with all the questions. You can learn more about Processing Faith and sign up for a free 45-minute session by going to ProcessingFaith.org. Com. Thanks again for joining us on searching safe.